Hi, this is Ellie Kushner with Dancewell Podcast, and today I'm speaking with Dr. Elizabeth Moray, who is a psychologist, a clinical psychologist, and we're going to be talking about identity. And Elizabeth Moray, PhD, studied ballet while growing up in California, Connecticut, and Massachusetts. She began teaching and working as an administrator for the Boston Ballet in 1995 while pursuing her undergraduate education at Boston University. During this time, Elizabeth's interest in psychological development and mental health of pre-professional dancers took root. She's played a central role in the creation, implementation, and evaluation of the Wellness Initiative at the Boston Ballet Center for Dance Education. After receiving her BS in psychology, she went on to receive a master's in counseling from Boston College and her doctorate in counseling psychology from the University of Texas at Austin. Dr. Moray's clinical work and research has focused upon women's health, and she has a specific interest in working with women, those at risk of developing eating disorders, including elite dancers. Dr. Moray currently serves as chief of the Department of Behavioral Health at Harvard Vanguard Medical Associates Chestnut Hill and serves several other roles there. Um, Elizabeth and I met many years ago at Boston Ballet, um, and that is my connection to her. If you've been following along with our other um, episodes on mental health, you know that identity is something that has um, come up as an, an issue that can arise in dance populations. And I think identity is something that we all kind of have a vague concept of, but would have a hard time defining. So um, Dr. Moray, Elizabeth, if you wouldn't mind, um, could you tell us what's meant in psychological terms by identity. Absolutely, and first of all, thank you for having me. This is one of my favorite topics to talk about, so I'm really thrilled to participate. When we think about identity, we're talking about a number of different factors that really shape what we call the mental model we have of who we are. Um, and that's really just kind of an academic way of talking about the thoughts we have about who we are, what we're good at, what we like, and what we value. Um, part of that comes from things that are more internal or biological. For instance, some of us are more extroverted, some of us are more introverted, and that has to do with the way we kind of take in data from the outside world and respond to it. Um, other parts of this come from our social context. So within our culture, within our family, within our community, who and what are we expected to be? Um, so really, if we think about identity, we're talking about different thoughts we have about who we are, our place in the world, and what's really important to us. So identity really is about um, like self-perception. It's, it's like defined from the self. Is that right? It is. It's often defined from the self, and it's often healthiest when it's defined from the self. But most of us have the experience of having external experiences and people in our lives or um, kind of cultural expectations that can be almost as powerful in defining who we are supposed to be as those internal thoughts about who we want to be and what we think is actually most authentic um, for ourselves as individuals. So it really is a combination of both the internal and the external. Okay, so I'm already getting an idea of how there could be conflict there. So there could yeah. either be harmony when um, 
both the internal and the external sort of agree, but um, there could also be dissonance when your internal perception of yourself isn't um, matching well with the external expectations. Exactly. And is that the kind of thing that um, comes up with dancers? I mean, from my my experience as sort of an extroverted verbal person, <laughs> I, I mean, I'm already seeing like, yeah, that's a challenge when you're in a field that expects you to be, you know, sort of quiet and sometimes docile and um, like, I'm already starting to understand some of the conflicts I had as a dancer. <laughs> Absolutely. And, you know, one of the biggest challenges, I would say, is that um, for dancers, they may not even have much of a chance to come in contact with who they authentically are or what is most natural for them as an individual because their environment gives some pretty clear and strong messages about who they're supposed to be. Um, so when you, you know, most dancers start training when they're quite young, you know, five, six, seven, eight years old. And when you begin to receive messages at that age about what's expected of you as an individual, what it means to be, quote unquote, a good dancer, um, and what it means to be successful in that context, sometimes because you are so young and your identity is really fluid at that point, um, it's very easy to adopt those beliefs as your own and not actually recognize that there is the possibility that you yourself may have some different values and different um, ways of approaching the world than those that are expected in the um, kind of the studio context. Interesting. Um, you used the word fluid just now, and is that um, is identity something that is ideally fixed or is it fluid? Is it healthier to have a really clear and definite sense of identity that sticks with you for a long time or is it better to have a sense of identity that's um, adaptable to different circumstances or are there benefits to both? Well the way I think about it is when we are young children we have the opportunity to really play with a number of different identities um, and so when you when you look at ch children and their behavior, you'll often see a lot of pretend play where they get to take on different identities and see how they fit. Um, and that that is a really healthy, natural opportunity for people to come in contact with different roles and find out which feel like a fit for who they are and which maybe are less interesting. And really, the process of development um, as people move into adolescence and young adulthood is to identify which of the roles, which of the values are really most in alignment um, with the authentic self, if we think about there being some collection of things that define who you are as a person. Um, and so there, there's kind of a, a balance that you'd like to strike between having some parts of your identity that do feel fixed that do feel like they define you as a person in a way that will always define you. For instance, if I consider myself a good friend, um, I hope that that will continue to be important to me throughout my entire life. Um, but there are other parts of my identity that hopefully will evolve over time. Um, so one example would be um, my identity as a psychologist certainly didn't exist for me at all when I was 16 years old. Mm -hmm. At that time, my identity as a dancer was really what was most um, central in my life. 
But over time, as I had different experiences, as I had different feedback, um, and really had the opportunity to identify different interests and skills, I, you know, my identity was able to evolve um, and to, to kind of integrate different parts of who I am and my experiences. And so I'd say, you know, there's a balance that I encourage people to try to strike between, you know, the identity components that are very much tied to their values and what's important to them and what feels authentic for them. And then pieces of that identity that ideally really are able to um, change, develop and evolve as they progress throughout their life um, and have different experiences. Um from my limited knowledge of the research I understand that like one thing that can be an issue for dancers is when their identity is like too myopic um on being a dancer and they haven't maybe developed or explored even those identities like being a good friend like maybe they are but they haven't really like you said, from their youth and dance, had the opportunity to really explore that as being part of their identity. Could you speak to that a little? Absolutely. Um, this is a you know a really important um, I think aspect of dancers' experiences and one that can serve as what I consider both a blessing and a curse. So, as most of us know, the teenage years or adolescence can be a time where many people feel quite lost. They don't know who they are. They may try on all different ways of being in the world, some of which are very healthy, others of which maybe are less so. Um, and so dancers often are protected from that because from a very early age, they have found this passion that, um, that defines who they are and the choices they make. Um, and some people never find that passion in mm -hmm. their life. And dancers yeah. have this amazing opportunity to experience something that really um, that drives them and, um, and kind of encompasses their life. And so often early in adolescence, that can actually be quite a protective um, experience. Um, I find that it's most kind of healthy when they also have the opportunities to at least experiment or try on um, different parts of their identity and what they enjoy and what they do. They often don't have very much time to do that. It's really hard to, let's say, train to be a professional dancer and also try out being on the lacrosse team. <laughs> um, there are people who do that. You know, I think that they're probably few and far between. Um, and so it may, you know, it may take a little more creativity in terms of finding time and space and support for other parts of identity um, but that can be really healthy um, and I always encourage parents to to think about providing those kinds of opportunities whenever possible. The times when the more narrow rigid approach to identity tends to become more problematic is during that transition to early adulthood and that's the time where you know, most people are beginning to figure out what they want to do with their life, what their purpose is, um, what, you know, what their skills are, and what is going to be kind of a sustainable career or life role for them. Um, and when we study this process in psychology, when people make that decision too young, 
um, before they've had a chance to really explore these different parts of themselves. We call that identity foreclosure. Um, and what that really means is that you've, you've done it very early. It tends to be pretty rigid and that people think this is who I am. This is all I can be. Um, and nothing else could possibly be as important as this in my life. And, um, and that's where we really begin to see the biggest challenges, especially for people who, you know, like the vast majority of people who train to be dancers, won't actually make a career of it. Um, and so rather than having the kinds of opportunities that might allow them to figure out how their training and their passion for dance will then translate into other things um, that might be more realistic and more sustainable for them, um, they often do experience what, what we might think of as an identity crisis when, mm -hmm. you know, the one thing that they have done that they you know, often very much want to do um, is no longer de determined to be realistic. And that may be because they get injured. It may be because they are never going to get into a company. It may be, you know, any number of different factors that, that creates that crisis for the dancer. Um, but that can be a very painful transition um, when when they just haven't had a chance to identify their other strengths and interests. You know, now that I'm in my late 30s, I, I myself have quit and returned to dancing several times <laughs> and have, you know, <laughs> a lot of friends who have parted ways with dance. And it, it is such a complicated process I mean my friends when I was going through it at one point would say like oh it's like an exorcism mm -hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, but I realized that like I've come to this I, I one thing I've noticed is differentiating like identity based on career versus this sort of I think like what you're saying about authentic self like I look at some of my friends who um aren't trying to dance professionally, but still go to class, or even like ones who have had children and aren't able to dance at this time. And I still think of them as dancers. Mm. And, and that's been a big, that's been a big insight to me that it's like, I've come to this point where I no longer think you have to have this or that type of job to be a dancer, but rather that like being a dancer is also about like, just how you connect to your body through space and daily life and your your wealth of knowledge about, you know, movement and dance and, and all and art and stuff like that. That's such an interesting observation because as I think of, uh, you know, what I think of as our peer group and the people who we know in common, there is such a range in terms of how this part of our identities have been integrated into our lives. And really, you know, we know people who are continuing to dance at the highest level possible. And then we know people who don't identify in any kind of formal way um, with, you know, with the dance world. And mm -hmm. then most people who fall somewhere in between. And, you know, I think that the beauty is that if you can figure out what it was about that part of your identity that actually felt most exciting and compelling to you, you can figure out if there's a way to translate it. So for me, I absolutely loved performing. I loved being on stage. Really, that was everything for me when I was dancing. Um, and at some point, I realized that when I was no longer doing it and, um, and noticed the 
kind of emptiness that I felt without that outlet. And while it is very, very different, um, when I'm now in the context of teaching in a large lecture hall or presenting in front of a group or, you know, even doing things like this where I'm Mm -hmm. able to share my thoughts, my experiences with other people, that part of me is very fulfilled. Um, And when I think about, you know, people we know who've gone on to do acting or interior design or arts administration, I think those people were able to figure out what it was that really compelled them and then translate it into something that they could sustain um, throughout hopefully the rest of their lives. Um, So there's something really exciting about that. And I think that it's a combination of being in a social environment and a family environment that sees that as an opportunity rather than a loss. And also, you know, being able to identify the ways in which you can you can begin to be flexible mm-hmm. in how you think about yourself and think about what's important to you and what you're good at. Yeah, I think that that's, I, I love that point that you made, you know, that the interior designer discovered that like, oh, one of the things I really love about dance is like looking at space and understanding how a space feels when you move through it and that can be found in other things or or somebody who says I just really it's that connection to my body and being able to move my body in a controlled way and becomes a yoga teacher or something um that's a great point another experience I have with identity um as a teacher is that a lot of my students come into well I teach mostly in college environments so they come into college and I've heard several of them express that entering college feels like a time where they can really consider their identity because um, they're sort of leaving their history behind and entering this clean slate and there's a bunch of people there who don't know their history Um, and while I see this with like college first years, I think it could also apply to somebody starting at a new dance studio or even older people starting a new job. Um, And student, you know, I mean, that's exciting to feel like there's opportunity, but a lot of students have also expressed that this can result in stress, that there's a lot of, they feel a lot of pressure um, that they're going to like define themselves anew and that feels stressful. Do you have any advice to to people in those situations? Sure. And I, I mean, I think when we think about stress, we often assume that stress is a bad thing. Mm-hmm. It's simply the way we respond to a change. That change could be one that is difficult or painful, um, and it can be one that's really positive. And for many people, going to college and being in this entirely new context um, is a really healthy transition, and yet it can also be very stressful because it requires you to adapt and adjust in in just so many different ways. Um, And, you know, so I think that ballet dancers tend to put a tremendous amount of pressure on themselves and to want to be able to kind of go in know what they're doing, do it right, 
get positive feedback and and really kind of achieve at the highest level. And so the opportunity to be in a context in which that is necessarily the expectation. I mean, we all have areas of our lives in which we want to do well. But in college, I think there is ideally a, a real support for experimentation and really looking at the different alternatives and perspectives and, and ways of that um, that are available to people. And just adopting that new mind mindset can in and of itself be stressful. And so what I you know, what I tell dancers is, you know, the fact that you're feeling stressed doesn't necessarily mean that there's anything wrong. It may actually mean that there's a lot going on that is very right. And to the extent that you can know that you don't always have to know what you're doing, you don't always have to be the best, and you don't always have to have it figured out, you may be able to respond to that stress and to all these changes in a way that allows you to get to know parts of yourself that you didn't know before. That's great. And I think um, it's also an, this is also an opportunity to talk about, um, well, cultural identity, because, you know, a lot of students maybe who may not identify as being Asian until they come to college and then they discover like a cultural group that makes them really connect to that identity or um, gender or sexuality are things that can also um, really come up in those transitions as you're, you know, facing a new blank slate. Yeah, I mean, the, the interesting thing about college and about young adulthood is that there's this responsibility that we take on for committing to things that are important to us as individuals. So much of our early lives are about the values, the expectations, the kind of cultural or community context in which we grow up. And so if our families think it's important that we be, you know, academically um, excellent, then that's usually one of the only choices that is available to us, uh, unless we want to face some negative consequences for going against them. Um, and so it, when people go to college, all of a sudden, you know, the, if using your example of someone who didn't necessarily identify um, with an Asian cultural background. Um, typically, that's because that was not something that was a big part of their upbringing. That wasn't something that was necessarily a primary value or um, kind of emphasis in their family. And then all of a sudden, you get into this new context, and you may get exposed to all kinds of people and different experiences that, um, that allow you to explore that part of your identity in a way that you haven't before. And that can be that can be really exciting, and it can be confusing because often it makes you question where you've come from now that you see the range of what other options and alternatives are available to you. Um, and so I think that you know a, the process is really one of moving from having your identity defined by your context and by the people in your life who are most influential on your development to actually then taking ownership for that process and, and figuring out what is most authentic and genuine for you, knowing that some pieces of your life and your identity may feel really important to you at one time when you're in college and might feel less important when you're in your professional career and that, that those kinds of transitions can be very healthy 
um, particularly when you're able to kind of stay in alignment in contact with those parts of your identity that are the more non-negotiable parts that I talked about earlier, the parts that reflect your values and what's important to you as a person, the parts of yourself that you'd like to see um, kind of guide your life more broadly rather than changing um, depending on where in your life you are. Um, getting back to, to dance and the complex environment specific to dance, um, what, what do you think that a dance environment, either teachers or parents or studios or, or just our, our culture of dance, um, could do to help dancers better identify and connect to those things that you mentioned as being like really integral to your core authentic self? Well, you know, I think that part of this is about give, making room for these kinds of conversations to happen. And I think about, for instance, the work that Elizabeth Sullivan, who I know you talked with earlier, um, the kind of work she does around creating spaces for young dancers to talk with them, uh, with each other and to kind of explore within themselves um, the parts of their, their life, their training, um, and their future that they value. Um, that may go above and beyond what is being emphasized in the studio or the on-stage environment. Um, I think it also really is connected to how we dance teachers and parents talk about definitions of success. If the only role models and kind of examples of what it means to be successful that are kind of given to students are people who've had professional dance careers. That communicates a pretty powerful message that this is what we want for you. And any of the other um, outcomes, any of the other possibilities are not as, not as meaningful, not as valuable, um, and not as successful. And so I think by talking about people who have utilized their dance training and gone on to do different things, who have contributed to the world in different ways, you know, in no small part due to the discipline and passion and, um, you know, really kind of holistic experience they had in, in pursuing something they loved when they were younger, um, that when those people are also included in the conversations we have about what it means to be successful, that can be really impactful. And so I encourage parents and teachers to not only talk about, you know, the wonderful um, outcomes that their training has provided in terms of people who've gone on to, you know, quote unquote, make it in the dance world, but to also make sure to make space for people who have taken that training and been really successful in other ways. Yeah, um, it's, it's a lot about like, connecting to the value of the process of dance training. Like I've mentioned to parents before, like send your kid to dance because you want them to, you know, experience what it is to pursue a passion or you want them to learn the rigor of daily practice or the discipline of, um, you know, really hearing feedback and absorbing it in a neutral way or whatever. Cause those are the skills that are going to be like, transferable to becoming anything 
perhaps a really successful dancer, but perhaps a doctor or, (laughs) you know, a mother or whatever it might be, Uh rather than getting fixated on like, we are going to dance class so that you can become a dancer. Right. And I think in so many parts of our lives, being able to focus less on outcomes and more on process Mm -hmm. can be really meaningful and really helpful that, you know, for most of us, we don't actually know what's going to happen a year from now or 10 years from now. All we know is what we need to do today or tomorrow to move ourselves in that direction. And so creating an environment in which, you know, people identify their goals and, you know, the kind of next steps for themselves to help them improve in whatever way makes sense at that point. So, you know, Dancers are innately really good at this. If mm-hmm. they're really good at doing three pirouettes, they're going to want to be able to do four. Right. Um, so this is not something that I think is hard to come by. But um, when it comes to the identity piece of the puzzle in terms of, you know, do I need to become a professional dancer or can I focus on where I am today and what I'd like to accomplish by like the end of the year? year. Right. And know that, you know, I will feel differently, most likely, or maybe I won't at that time, but at that time I'll I'll revisit where I am and then have the opportunity to kind of chart my course in the direction that makes sense for me at at that point, rather than trying to do that when really all I can do today is focus on what I'm going to do in technique class today or the performance I have tonight. Yeah, that's great. Um, Before we end, just... Um, what, when is an identity in crisis? So we've talked about sort of things that can come up that can be issues, but what, what is a crisis? How should a dancer know to identify when there's sort of, uh, an identity crisis or, on the cusp of an identity crisis situation and, and what do they do if they're in that situation? As a psychologist, the situations that worried me the most are when, people begin to do things that violate their own values, that cause harm to their bodies, or that really put them in situations in which they feel um, they are kind of going along uh, with things that, that aren't necessarily what they would choose, but end up being what they feel they have to do because they don't know what else to do instead. So, you know, at times we see this with eating disorders where you know, when, during times of stress or, or struggling with their identity, weight becomes a very concrete um, focus. And you know, it, it's much easier, quite honestly, to focus on how many calories you eat today and what the number on the scale says than it is to focus on what's important and meaningful in your life. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's also obviously really damaging and has such long-term consequences. So you know, when I see people who begin to jeopardize um, their own mental well-being, their own physical well-being, um, that's always a red flag. Or even like their social well-being. They are out of alignment with that part of their identity. Um, And then when I see people who, you know, who feel like they have to conform, they have to go along with the dominant um, expectations, the dominant pressures, because 
it's much easier to do that than it is to identify and then act on their own values. That's a time when I, I really use it as an opportunity to kind of look inward and begin that process of identifying what an individual values, because that's going to be a very protective um, experience when it comes to confronting the parts of our lives, the parts of our culture, the parts of our experiences that may pull us in a direction that really is out of alignment with what's most important to us and who we are. What is that? What What do you think that feels like? That feeling of like being pulled out of alignment. It's so funny because it's such a um, a term that we use like biomechanically, you know, to be in alignment mm-hmm. and the in the the injury <laughs> yeah. risk to being pulled out of alignment. So it's it's interesting that there's a parallel there. Um, what kind of feelings do you think people have when there's that out of alignment sense with their identity? Yeah, that's it's so interesting. I had never thought about kind of the physical equivalent, but. Usually when you're out of alignment, you feel some kind of psychological pain. Um, And psychological pain and pain in general isn't always bad. Sometimes we feel pain because we are doing what's actually most important to us. And, you know, it's because we're committed to something we value that we're willing to tolerate and we're willing to keep despite the fact that it's really hard. Um, But when I see people struggling with pain, that looks like questioning kind of the fundamental core of who they are and their worth as an individual or feeling um, that somehow they can never be authentic with the people who are important to them mm-hmm. um, or they can't be vulnerable and take chances uh, because it just feels too scary and too risky. Those are the times when I'll, I really wonder um, about what's going on on a deeper level in terms of, of these um, these values and how their life is, is either in alignment or out of alignment. So, you know, it, there's a continuum here, and some psychological pain is normal and healthy and productive, just as, you know, being sore after a particularly um, challenging dance class can be that way. Um, but when you start to do things that injure you yourself psychologically in the same way that if you push yourself too hard when you're injured um, it can have really long-term consequences when people begin to act um, and live their lives in a way that is damaging to themselves or to other people um, I you know I, I really begin to have conversations with them about whether this is an indication that they're somehow not able to come in contact with and to live in harmony with what's most important to them. Great. Um, For those of you who have been listening, we've been interviewing Catherine Drury from the Actors Fund, and we've learned a lot about how accessible um, their resources are. Um, Mm. And what other resources are usually available to dancers? I mean, if they're young people, they might have a guidance counselor at their school who they can talk to. Some professional companies um, have a psychologist on staff. What other, do you know of any other resources that are good for dancers to reach out to in these times of crises? Well, I have to put in a plug for therapy. Um, You know, there are amazing therapists in the world who often are covered by health insurance and who can provide support and guidance and just kind of a constant and um, predictable um, presence that can 
allow dancers to explore the things that are both both most painful and most meaningful to them. Um, Also finding mentors, other people who have navigated the challenges of, of these life transitions and who have ended up in a place that you admire or that you would aspire to be. Um, and, and being vulnerable with them and letting them know, you know, that you're struggling and that you, you would value um, their input and their feedback. Most of us, if approached in that way, are more than happy to talk about our experiences and to support um, people as they kind of navigate that journey. And so being willing to reach out to those people can be really, really impactful and really meaningful and off stage for lifelong relationships. And then, you know, there are a lot of other kinds of resources available, um, different self-help books and even online apps to help people combat negative thinking patterns, um, practice mindfulness skills, um, you really engage in healthier lifestyles and, you know, to be willing to look at what's available um, and, and, you know, experiment a little about what what has, uh, experiment with what's been recommended by professionals and see what works for you. Um, I think that, you know, particularly when people are more limited in terms of time and resources, that, that looking to these kinds of books or podcasts or apps or whatever can can be um, really valuable and helpful. Great. Um, and then I think to finish, um, let's give you our experimental closing question. Um, what do you love? Okay. <laughs> what do you love about the work you do with dancers? Is there anything else you want to share? And and what is it that you love about dancers? Well, you know. Dancers are such a unique group of people because, you know, it's really, I think, nearly impossible to commit yourself to the process and to the rigors of dance training without being really passionate about what you do. And, you know, we, we share that common bond. And I think um, when I work with dancers, I'm always amazed at the ways in which from a very early age they have been able to take this passion and allow it to define and guide their lives. Um, And I share that experience with them. I think it is one of the parts of my life um, that I am most grateful for, even now that I haven't set foot in a studio in (laughs) a lot of years. I, you know, I, I still resonate strongly with that. And so to be able to encourage people, encourage dancers to build on that strength and, and to celebrate that strength and really um, have the freedom to take that to its kind of ultimate um, expression, regardless of what context that happens, is a really meaningful piece of my work. And um, I would say just really a unique a unique experiences for most of them from a unique experience for most of us who have that opportunity um, to experience dance training on the other side of it to work with and connect with people who are sharing that really important informative part of our own experiences great thank you so much this is again dr elizabeth moray um, clinical psychologist 
And um, I know you're a very busy woman, so I really appreciate you taking the time to talk with us today. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. On behalf of Marissa and myself, Ellie Kushner, I want to say thank you to all of our listeners for joining us on this episode of Dancewell Podcast. Like what you hear? Go to iTunes or Stitcher or SoundCloud and search Dancewell Podcast to subscribe. We'll be releasing bi-monthly episodes with an emphasis on exploring 360 degrees of health and wellness for dancers. Have questions or want to get in touch? Email us at dancewellpodcast at gmail.com. Bye!